It reminds me of an old uh, George MacDonald poem. The hands of Christ seem very frail, for they were broken by a nail. But only he reach heavens, uh, reaches heaven at last, whom those frail, broken hands hold fast. Uh, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes. That may be a little hard to find, but you will probably never forget the Song of Solomon. And uh, the Song of Solomon comes immediately after the book of Ecclesiastes. This is another one of those texts with a twist. Studying uh, one of these uh, one of these samples of wisdom literature is like reading uh, an Agatha Christie novel or watching an old Hitchcock movie. Uh, your expectations are aroused in in one direction, and and suddenly you're turned. Everything changes. And at the moment that change occurs, your defenses are subverted. He gets down under your, uh, your defenses, your defense system, uh, into your mind. And a, a new insight, a new understanding breaks upon you. That's the, the point and the purpose of this, uh, this type of literature. Now, we saw last week an example from the Song of Songs where our expectations are aroused for the kind of love and romance that this young woman envisions. But uh, as she continually arouses those expectations, she throws cold water on it. She says, no, don't, uh, don't uh, stir up love before the time. We will give no love before the time. We'll be no one's uh, playgirl until the time. And uh, the time that we see, as we see, is the time when some man will give himself to you without reservations, with no strings attached, and will love you as Christ loves his church throughout the rest of your life. And then uh, the week before, we looked at Proverbs 31, an example of this, uh, this type of twist in the wisdom literature where he paints a picture of the total woman who has it all together. And uh, uh, then uh, instead of saying that her strength comes from uh, her affirmation of her womanhood or her aerobics class, uh, charm is deceitful, he says, beauty is vain, it's the woman who fears the Lord who will be praised so that we see her strength coming from God himself, which makes, uh, makes being total possible. Now, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is exactly like that. It's the same type of, of literature, so watch out uh, for the twist. It comes at the very end. W- one of the problems in teaching this book is that it simply cannot be taught piecemeal. If you try to teach it a chapter at a time or a paragraph at a time, it gets very depressing. Because the purpose of the book is to drive us to despair. He does it uh, over and over again. Uh, You can't uh, teach the book that way. You have to see it as a whole, which presents an enormous problem because you have 12 chapters and a lot of material to cover. But you need to see it as one lecture. And that's exactly what it is. The the word uh, that's used for the speaker here, teacher in the NIV, or preacher in some translations, or professor in others, simply means someone who gives a lecture, someone who addresses an assembly. Our word Ecclesiastes comes from, in fact, it's exactly the Greek word, the Greek title that was given to this book, Ecclesiastes, which means in Greek, someone who speaks to an audience, someone who addresses an assembly. And that's what this is. It's a lecture. It's all of a piece. It's one, one garment. You try to cut it apart and you, you ruin the, the, uh, the thing. So we need to see it as the argument develops. Uh, He begins in verse 2 with a theme. 
Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you say, my goodness, this book is going to be a bummer. I can see at the very outset that uh, this is going to be a very depressing book to read and to study. Forty times, he says in the book, life is meaningless. That's the theme of it all. And so we'll get the point without uh, any misunderstanding. He elaborates. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? That phrase, under the sun, also occurs a number of times, 30 times in the book. And it's a, a reference to this life, life before death. So he makes this point. What does a man gain from all the hard work that he engages in throughout his life? Generations come and generations go. Babies are born and adults die. We come and go, and mostly we go, but uh, the earth remains forever, and it mocks us. That's the only thing that endures. People go, the earth remains. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. Nature is a closed system. No news from outside. We're shut up in a closed room. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, he says. More than one can say. Words actually have lost their meanings, what he means. As Byron says, society is made up of two polished hordes. Uh, is made up of one polished horde, made up of two tribes, the boring and the bored. Life is wearisome, has no point, has no meaning. As George Sanders said uh, in his suicide note, I'm leaving because I'm bored. Nothing to live for, no purpose or meaning in life. The eye never has enough of seeing or the eye its fill of hearing. When you first see, see the sawtooths, you're impressed. The next time you see them, you're less impressed. And uh, people who live up there can look at them all day and, and uh, they're, not, they're totally unimpressed. Uh, it's true of pornography. The first time you read pornography, you're titillated by it. The next time you read it, you need something more. The eye is never full. The mind is never satisfied. What has been done will be done again. What has been, uh, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. And nostalgia ain't what it used to be, as someone said. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. History is meaningless. As Henry Ford said, history is bunk. Has no uh, significance. Life is, uh, is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. And we say, well, where is this man going? What, what is he trying to do to us? He sounds like uh, my favorite old uh, pagan uh, poet, Al Algernon Swinburne, who said, uh, from too much love of living, from faith and fear set free, I thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be, that no one lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the loneliest river runs somewhere out to sea. Nothing but despair. Emptiness. Nothing to live for. 
Well, now let me tell you what I think this man is trying to do. He is trying to get us to think about the meaning of life rather than simply what life provides. Most of us never really think seriously about the purpose of life. And he puts himself into the skin of an unbeliever who has no information about life apart from what he can observe. In other words, he sees life as a closed system. There is no, no one outside giving us any help in understanding life. This is all there is. This is all we have. And uh, here's a man who has, a, has tremendous resources. As far as we know, Solomon wrote this book. Solomon was probably the most brilliant man who ever lived. Certainly he was the most brilliant man of his time. He might be the, the most intelligent man who, who ever lived. He was almost certainly the wealthiest man who ever lived. And at his time he had more power than anyone else has ever had in the world. He was uh, uh, king of a nation that was the preeminent power in, in the ancient uh, Near East. So he had all sorts of resources, and he had a lot of time, and he had a lot of money. He could dabble around in, in all sorts of things. He was a great thinker. He was a, sort of a Leonardo da Vinci of his time. He was a biologist and a botanist. He classified plants and animals, and he wrote beautiful literature and poetry. And He was, he was a Renaissance man of his time. He could do it all. And he had all sorts of time and leisure and money and, and resources. He could try everything. So he said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give myself to the pursuit of... Of, uh, of wisdom and pleasure and I'm going to try to find out what life is all about as a man would if he had no information from outside. This is what we would call today a cultural apologetic. It, it's getting into the thinking, into the mind of the man in, or woman in the world in secular society who doesn't know God and trying to think the way they think. And the, the Old Testament is a, is a missionary book. I hope you know that. As a matter of fact, one of the Proverbs, Proverbs 8, says that this wisdom is given not to Israel necessarily, but to the whole world. And Deuteronomy 4 points out that the world would look at Israel and say, my goodness, where do these people come up with all this wisdom? And they would be drawn to God as a result. Now, this is a book for people on the outside. It's one of the most powerful and penetrating evangelistic tracts you could ever read. Now let's follow his argument. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study. The word means to, to look for the roots of a matter. And uh, to consider uh, all of life and examine all sides of life and explore by wisdom all that is done under, under heaven. heaven. He says, that's a heavy burden. Uh, what a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after wind. So he tells of his search, and then he warns us of, it, of, of his outcome at the end. He didn't really find an answer. What is twisted, he says, cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Everything is flawed. Everything has limitations. Some things cannot be changed, he says. There, there are certain inexorable things in life that cannot be changed. Some of you know my son, Randy. Uh, he just got out of the Marine Corps here a few months ago. And uh, he is a big kid. He's uh, about 6'1". He weighs about 240. He, I, I always wonder how in the world Carol and I could ever produce something that large. <laughs> he is big. 
And uh, he was a sergeant in the Marine Corps, and he was used to giving orders and having people jump. Uh, he has a, 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 a little daughter, my granddaughter. I'd like to show her to you sometime. She's the prettiest little girl that ever lived. Uh, she is 18 months old, and uh, she's uh, soaking wet, weighs about 13 pounds, and she's just like a little Dresden doll. And Randy says to her, Melanie, uh, pick up your toys. She says, no. <laughs> Randy says, hey, Dad, what's going on here? I'm used to saying jump. Well, people go, grok, and they say, how high? Hi, hi. and, and, and I say to Melanie, Melanie, pick up your toys. She says, no. See, there are some things that are twisted that you can't straighten out. You run into these problems all the time. There are limitations. There are strictures. There are pressures. There are things wrong with the world that can't be set right. And, and Solomon says, that's the problem with the world. He says, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned this, that it's like chasing after wind. It's empty, it's vain, it's meaningless, it's pointless. Life is zilch. It comes up goose eggs. I thought in my heart, all right, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. So he becomes a hedonist, a person who believes that pleasure is the ultimate goal of life, the ultimate good. But he says, that was empty. Laughter, I said, is foolishness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine. The, the text says, I tried carrying myself with wine. In other words, I, I, didn't, I didn't get blind, staggering, falling down drunk. That's stupid because you wake up in the morning with a hangover. So I just uh, stayed moderately high all the time. I just kept a buzz on. I became a wine connoisseur. And I, 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 I drank, but I did it with, with reason didn't become irrational. And I embraced folly, uh, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. So he began to look into the absurd, the strange, the obscene, the ugly, uh, the sort of thing that people do. The thing that strikes me about this book is how contemporary it is. The, the, the music of today, the, you know, the Mad Max movies, the uh, cultivation of of the absurd and the irrational and the drug scene. He says, I tried all these things, and yet I, I, I did it reasonably. I didn't go to extremes. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women, singers, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all my wisdom stayed with me. In other words, he did this reasonably. It wasn't just an, he didn't abandon himself to hedonism. He, he thought this thing through. He said, I built a, I built a uh, playboy uh, mansion. And I brought in, uh, hair, I brought a harem, I brought dancing girls in. He said the whole thing was just empty and meaningless, pointless, didn't do anything for me. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. 
I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. That's the paradox of hedonism. The more you get, the more you want. It's a bottomless pit. You can't satisfy yourself with things. He built himself a Garden of Eden with no forbidden fruit. And when he got it all put together, he said, it's all empty and meaningless and vain. It adds up to nothing, absolutely nothing. I've told you before of the friend of mine who ran with a street gang in San Francisco who was killed in a street fight, actually trying to break up a street fight. He's a Christian who is having real problems in his spiritual life. His parents asked me and a friend of mine, Ron Ritchie, to have the funeral. We had a funeral in a park up in the Santa Cruz uh, Mountains. And a number of people came from San Francisco, motorcycle gangs and others. They drove their uh, bikes down to this beautiful spot in the mountains where we had this funeral. And after it was over, a fellow came up to me dressed in leathers, kind of a large fellow with chains hanging here and there. And he said, uh, you know, he said, I, I, I just want to thank you for what you said. We had talked about the emptiness of life and that you can only find meaning by finding God. And he said, you know, he said, I've got a putt and a pad and an old lady, but I ain't got no peace, he said. I've never forgotten that. A putt and a pad and an old lady, he said, but I ain't got no peace. You know what he meant. I have a bike and I have a place to stay and I have a girlfriend, but it It adds up to nothing. Or you can have a Mercedes and a condominium in Sun Valley and a beautiful young lady. It's Zilch. Adds up to nothing. Zero. So he goes on. I hated life, in verse 17. Gave way to despair. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And not only that, he says, I hated everything. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. You ever see that t-shirt, life is hard, and then you die. (laughs) And that's what he's saying. I just came to the point that I hated life and I hated everything I possessed. That's realistic. That's realism. You see, this man is thinking about what life means, not what it provides. People come up here to Idaho because they think they're going to enjoy the good things of life up here, and there's so much to enjoy. And They fish and they hunt and they snowmobile and they ski the great slopes and, and they enjoy life to the hilt up here, and they never once stop to think what it all means, and after a while it doesn't mean anything. It's just empty. So he says, uh, he came to the conclusion in verse 24 that a man can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Now, that... That sounds good, but really what he's saying is, I just, I just came to the conclusion that the only life is an existential life. Just live for today. That's all. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow you die. That's it. Chapter 3. Now, it's hard to follow his argument because Easterners uh, 
don't always think like we Westerners do. We're, we've been trained in, in Aristotelian logic to think in terms of cause and effect. So we argue, 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 conclusion, argue, 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 conclusion. But Easterners don't think that way. It's more of a stream of consciousness. That's why the book of 1 John, for example, is so hard to outline. You cannot outline 1 John because he's not trying to think like a Westerner. He's a Semite, and he's just he's thinking in, in a circle. It's a stream of consciousness, one idea after another. Some, he says something, it triggers another thought, he takes off on that idea, and, and that's, what, that's what Solomon is doing here. Listen to this. Some of you will remember this, uh, the words from chapter 3 from an old Pete Seeger song. If you were in the, alive and well in the 60s and in college, you, uh, you'll remember this. Joan Baez sang it too. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh. And uh, if you remember what uh, Pete Seeger did with it, he took the last line and rendered it this way, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. Remember that was in the Vietnam era? And this was an anti-war song, and his point is that it's a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. But uh, he missed the point of the, uh, of, of the uh, chapter. Because if you read it the way it's intended to be read, it, uh, to be read <laughs> the, the point of it all is that time tyrannizes us 28 times, like a bell, uh, like, a, like a bell tolling. Time, time time. We're trapped in time. And as he goes on to say in, in chapter 3, uh, verse 9, verse 10, I've seen the burden that God has laid on man. He has made everything beautiful in its time, but he has set eternity in the hearts of men. See, the problem is we're creatures of eternity. We're, we have hearts and minds as big as all outdoors. We can think God's thoughts after him. And we're trapped by time tyrannizes us, controls us. We're controlled by our schedules and our calendars and we're driven. We check our wristwatches every 30 minutes or so because we're just, time just cramps our style. And that's his point. 16, he says, I, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity. If time, if there's a time for all sorts of things, there must be a time for judgment. But there isn't. We keep waiting for something to happen in South Africa. We waited for something to happen in Uganda. And where, where is where is the judgment? So uh, he says uh, in verse 22, I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that's his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? There's no afterlife. You might as well go for broke. Get it now. Because this is all there is. Now, uh, his thought of the oppressed leads him into a, a longer poem about the tears of the oppressed, which we'll not have time to look at. Uh, except to say that he concludes from looking at the plight of the oppressed that it, they're better off dead. As a matter of fact, they're better off being never being born. And then, then he, he says in verse 4, I, I, 
Again, I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. It doesn't spring from good intentions. It doesn't come out of good motivation. It comes out of a competitive spirit. Everything that man achieves, he says, is done because he wants to be one up on his, on his neighbor. You know, everybody's playing king on the mountain. I have a friend down in Arizona who sells uh, stereo systems. He wrote me a letter this last week, and he said, I, I sold an $8,000 stereo system to a, a customer of ours. His neighbor calls me up the next day and says, I, I, I listened to my neighbor's stereo. I want one that costs $10,000. So the first man called back and said, I want one that costs 12000 And that's the way we live. That's meaningless, chasing after wind. Uh, down in verse 13, it says that even though you do get ahead, uh, you compete successfully, you win the game, you have the most toys, that's meaningless. A better a poor but wise man than an old but foolish king. Here's an old king that's been in the saddle too long. He's out of touch with reality and needs to be replaced. Uh, better a wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. Success story. Poor man makes good, right? No. There's no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the, with the successor. After a while, they didn't like the young man that delivered them from the foolish king. That's the fickleness of the public. And that's meaningless. It's chasing after wind. It's empty. Adds up to nothing. I'll skip a chapter or two. I wish we had time to read all of it. Well, no, let's read verse 8. That's worth reading. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, then justice and rights denied. Do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are, other, are, are uh, others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from, from the fields. In a bureaucracy, everybody looks after everyone else, he says. And uh, that's what makes it possible for, uh, for injustice to become entrenched in society. And in the end, everybody gets his cut. The king gets his cut, and everybody else profits as well. But, he says, even though they get their cut, verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. That's meaningless. All money does is create a craving for more. That's why wealthy people can't stop working hard, because they want more, because they're not satisfied by what they have. And so in, in verse 18, he concludes again. This is one of a number of conclusions through the book. I realize that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for that's his lot. In other words, live for now. This is it. Better get all you can right now. But uh, in chapter 6, he says there's another evil under the sun. Here's a, here's a man who gets it all. He has wealth, possessions, and honor. He lacks nothing, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. He has everything he ever wanted, and he doesn't want anything that he has. That's what Thoreau called destination sickness. He's arrived, and he didn't want any of it. Verse 7, all man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. You thought about that? And we work in order to buy food so we can build up our bodies. So we can work, so we can buy food, so we can build up our bodies. 
so we can work. Now that's meaningful. <laughs> Verse 12, who knows what is good for man in life? If, if there is no God, if this is all there is, if, if we live in a system that's closed to the outside, where is there any moral order? Who knows what's right and what's wrong? And uh, what follows, we don't have time to read these, I wish we could, but what follows is a collection of proverbs that simply corroborate what he's saying. No one knows what's good, because life is so upside down and, and crazy. I mean, what we think is good is evil, and what we think is evil is good. Somebody's got to tell us what's good and what's evil. A good name is better than fine perfume. Everybody says, that's good. You have a good reputation. That's good. But you know what's better? The day of death. That's a surprise. It, better than a good name is, is when someone dies. Why? Well, because it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. We say the good life is partying. One party after another. That's the good life. Solomon says, no, the good life is going to one funeral after another. Because there is more reality at a funeral than there is at a party. Do you see what he's saying? Because you have to face things as they really are. You can't kid yourself there. Sorrow is better than laughter for, because a sad face is good for the heart. It's good to sober up every once in a while and see things as they really are. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. You know, we, you know kids plug in, we do too, listen to beautiful music to tranquilize ourselves. And he says, no, no, it's better to have a friend rebuke you. Someone says a friend is someone who stabs you in the front. Verse 7, extortion turns a wise man into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. You know what that is? That's Lord Acton's uh, axiom. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Read verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. The, the good die young. Does that ring a bell? Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Do you understand what he's doing? This is all tongue-in-cheek. He advocates moral cowardice with a straight face. If you don't watch out, he says, if you're too good, you may die young. Because it is true that the good seem to die young. But if you're too wicked, you'll probably die too because your wickedness will get you in the end. So the best thing is to go right down the middle of the road. He advocates uh, non-commitment. Just don't get too religious. You, you can give God the time of day, but don't really take him seriously. And you can be wicked, but don't be too wicked. And he says all that with a poker face. And you know, that is precisely where society is today. You stop and think about it. Uh, came across a, just a great doomsday cartoon the other day. Michael sitting in front of the TV set, and all these loud gunfights and 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 a lot of violence. And the announcer says, "This concludes our regular broadcast day. Stay tuned for the national anthem, film clips of the Marines, and a story from the life of Jesus." And there it is. It's kind of a mosaic of everything. Put together, a little bit of everything's good. A little bit from the life of Jesus, a little bit of patriotism, this and that and the other. But don't, don't get too serious about anything because it will get you in trouble. 
Ah, let's see, what can I cut out? I'm running out of time. He concludes that no one is righteous on the earth. Verse 30, there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. But uh, verse 22, though it is true that no one else is righteous, neither are you, he says. And so um, he says in verse 25, I turn my mind to understand and investigate and search out wisdom in the scheme of things. And to understand the stupidity of weakness uh, and the madness of folly. He says, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Now, you know, this, he's not dogmatizing. He's not saying that all women are like this. This is just his discovery. Adding one thing to another to, another to dis- discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not found, finding, I found one upright man among a thousand. We'd say I found one in a million, but not one upright woman among them. I am so disillusioned, just utterly disillusioned by life. That was his experience. Tried to find love and was totally frustrated in his search. And so he says in verse 15, I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry. So he, he says in, in chapter 9, I reflected on all, on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. Well, that's good, but what kind of God? But no one knows whether love or hate awakens him. If there's no word from the outside, how do we know when we step into death that, that we don't, don't face a spiteful, hateful God? Who knows what God is like? So he says this is the evil in verse 3. This is the evil that... In everything that happens under the sun, the same destiny overtakes all. Therefore, the hearts of men are full of evil, and there is insanity in their hearts while, while they live. It's the uncertainty about life that drives men mad. It either drives them to evil because they believe there's no moral order in the universe, or they just go insane. So, in verse 7, he concludes again. Uh, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in your life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave where you're going there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Oh, you better go for all the gusto. You only go around once. So the only life is the existential life. Just pull out all the stops and go for it. Because there isn't anything else. Moreover, he says, let me back up to verse uh, 11. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance overwhelm them all. They're cut down by... uh, by the unexpected. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. And, and what follows are a, a number of examples of non-predictable elements in life, things that cut your feet right out from under you that you never expected. 
Time and chance, he says, happened to them all. I've told my story before about the men who uh, uh, found a bottle on the beach and rubbed it and out popped a genie and gave the men two, uh, two requests. So he wished for a Mercedes SL380 with a trunk full of gold bullion. He decided he better save his other wish because you never know when you're going to need something like that. So he, he gets into his Mercedes he begins to drive down the freeway singing to himself, excited about what he's going to do with all of his money. Forgets himself and begins to sing, Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. <laughs> That's one of those unexpected uh, elements in life. And to make his point, he tells us a story. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom. It greatly impressed me. There was a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a poor, a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. Now here's a, here's a story that came out, right? But nobody remembered it. As Shakespeare put it, the wickedness that people do lives forever. The good that they do is interred with their bones. Something very unfair about life. Here's a good man, saved the city. Nobody remembers it. And then what follows are a series of examples of how unpredictable life is and how unfair it is and how little things tear everything up and destroy life for us. What Solomon calls the little foxes that eat the grapes in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 10, verse 1, As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Little things can spoil everything, he says. A fly in the ointment ruins everything. Verse 9, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. We know that's true. You go out into the woods to cut your winter wood supply and a tree falls on you or something. It breaks your leg. It's the way life is. You never know what's going to happen next. Verse 14, fools multiply words, but no one knows what's coming. Who can tell him what will happen after him? Verse 20, do not revile a, revile a king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird of the air may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. You're not even safe when you're in bed. That's what he's saying. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, cast your bread upon waters for after many days you will find it again. We've quoted that thing many, many times, but you see where he's taking us? Give portions to seven, yes, eight, because you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Verse 5, you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Verse 6, sow your seed in the morning, and in the evening let not your hands be, be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will, will do equally well. See, he's driving on this point that life is so uncertain, no one knows. They don't know anything. And so for reasonable, the most reasonable approach to life, if we have no information from outside, is to be agnostic. That's the best we can come up with. I don't know. Now, verse 7, he begins to lead us home. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. Good thing to wake up in the morning and see the sun. You know you're still alive. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all, but let him remember the days of darkness. That's his, his uh, metaphor for death. For they will be many. 
You live 70 years and you're dead for a long, long time. So he says, you better, while you've got the 70 years, think a little bit about the meaning of life. Ah, he says something to young men. As a matter of fact, this whole book is written to young men. Be happy, young men, while you're young. That's odd advice. You know that the leading cause of death right now among adolescents is, is suicide? They get disillusioned about life. He says, don't get bummed out about life. Be happy. Enjoy it. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. You know, ski the mountains, ski the slopes. Race your motorcycles across the desert. Go for broke. That's what youth is for. While you've got the vigor and strength and stamina and youth to do for it, do it. Go for everything you can get out of life. Live to the hilt, he says. You know, why are we always cramping kids' style? Trying to keep them from doing things that their hearts long to do. Solomon says, go for it. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. In other words, gentlemen, ladies, this is not all there is. One of these days, we will step out of this life into the presence of God. This isn't all there is. There is more moral order in the universe. There is a God who is there. And when it's all said and done, we'll step into his presence. So we have to live responsibly. Go for broke, he says. But realize that there is, there is a God. And that you will have to face him. So banish bitterness is the word anxiety from your hearts. Don't be provoked by this hard and disappointing world. And cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are fleeting, actually. Don't have much time to enjoy youth, so just enjoy it while you can. But don't forget to remember God. You see? Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. The Hebrew word suggests prime in the days of your strength when you're in the prime time of your life before the days of trouble come. And the days of trouble here are are the days of old age. Notice how he's, he describes it. He, he says, Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. That is the dark period that precedes uh, death. He's talking about old age. There are two ways to look at old age in the Old Testament. One is to see it as good old age and the other is to see it as bad old age. And bad old age is being old and regretting it. Looking back on your life and and, and, and realizing that you've blown your life away. You've wasted it. You've thrown it away. There's nothing sadder. So Solomon says, go for broke. But don't live your life in such a way that you look back with regret. When the keepers of the house tremble. These are all, these are all uh, oriental uh, images of old age. When the keepers of the house tremble. When your hands tremble. And the strong men stoop. That is when you have bow legs. When the grinders cease because they are few, the teeth, you go out, you, you, you bite into a steak and you leave your teeth there. <laughs> and those looking through the windows grow dim, your eyesight grows dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. You ever heard of a mill when it's grinding? You can hear it blocks away. 
But he says the doors to the street, that is the ears, are, are closed. You can't even hear grinding. When men rise up at the sound of the birds, when they wake up at the crack of dawn because they can't sleep in the mornings, but all their songs, that is the bird songs, grow faint. They wake up with the birds, but they can't hear them. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, I always think of my father. My father was one of the most courageous men I've ever known. He's 89 now, and he's fearful. He's fearful of heights. He's fearful of other things. It's so unlike him. But that's what age will do to you. makes you afraid. When the almond tree blossoms, the hair turns white, and the grasshopper drags himself along. You can't hop anymore. There's no spring in your step. And desire no longer is stirred. You're impotent. Then a man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. You see, see what he's saying? Remember God before it's too late. Before you waste your life. And you go into old age regretting everything you've done. You're filled with guilt and remorse and you realize you've destroyed yourself and destroyed others. Don't do that, he said. Remember God while you're young, while you still have your life ahead of you. Remember him in verse 6 before the silver cord is severed. Now, this is difficult to interpret, but for, for myself, I think verses 1 through 5 refer to what we would call natural death. Verses 6 and following refer to accidental death. Before the silver cord is broken, that is, you, you, you break your neck. That's what my mother used to always tell me. You do that, you're going to break your neck. None of my friends had ever broken their neck, but that's what she always said. You're going to break your neck if you do that. Or you're going to poke your eye out. That's the other way. <laughs> But that's what he's saying. Remember him before you break your neck. Or the golden bowl is shattered. Your skull is crushed. You fall off of a mountain. You slip one misstep. And you're gone. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well. For myself, I think he's talking about heart attacks, coronary strokes that strike you down unexpectedly. And the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Unless, unless we hear him all the way to his conclusion. Now listen, this is the punchline. This is, this is what the all... You know, uh, my son Brian said to me uh, yesterday when I, he asked me what I was going to preach on. I said, Ecclesiastes. He said, well, all you have to do is preach the last three verses. I mean, that's the whole point. And, and that's what he's taking us to. You see, he keeps driving us to despair all the way along. And then he says... Now, I want you to understand my methodology first. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and researched, and he set in order these proverbs. The teacher, so he, he did his homework. He, he read up. He was read up. He was thought out on what he was saying, and then he wrote it up. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was right and true, wrote accurately and well. The words of the wise are like goads, that is, they goad your will. A goad, you know, is a long wooden stick with a spike on the end that they use to prod uh, their animals. The, the words of the wise are like goads. They prod your will. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. They stick in your memory. And by the way, notice that the S in shepherd is capitalized and the translators are right. He's not talking about himself, as so many translators think. He's talking about God. See what he says? Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, because of the making of many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Thousands of books have been read on the meaning of life over the thousands of years of human history. But as Aslan said to Lucy, we've been reading the wrong books. 
We read these books and, 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 and they've led us astray. They give us a bum steer. He says, do you want to know the meaning of life? Then listen to the shepherd, the shepherd of Israel, who's described in Psalm 81 as the one who shepherds uh, his people. Listen to him. Listen to his book. And he'll tell you the meaning of life. See, the problem is we don't have a clue unless God tells us. We don't know what life is for. We have no idea what it's for unless he explains it to us. Suppose you walk into the kitchen and your wife has a teapot on the, on the stove and it's, it's boiling and you say, what, what is that? Why, why is that water boiling? Well, there are a couple of answers she could give. One is uh, she could explain it scientifically, that this, the things heat up, the molecules begin to move, and she could explain it in terms of, of uh, she could give some scientific explanation. But that, that wouldn't help you a whole lot, and you might even know that if you, if you knew something about, uh, about science. Uh, if she says to you, well, I'm going to make a cup of tea. That's the sort of thing you could not know unless she told you. Now, when we ask the question, what is man, and we get scientific explanations, they don't satisfy us very much. And the only person who can tell us what man is for is God himself, because he made us and then he wrote the book on the subject of manhood and womanhood. So he's the only one who can tell us what life is for. So that's what this man is saying. Is if you want to know what life is for, then you've got to read the right book. And the right book is the book that's been written by the shepherd. And this, he says, is the meaning of life. This is what it's all for. When all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. You don't need to look anymore. If you understand this, you will have arrived. Fear God and keep his commandments. For literally, that's all there is with respect to man. Now, my translation says this is the whole duty of man, but that's not what the text says. It says that's all there is with regard to man. That's the mannishness of man. That's the womanish, womanishness of woman. That's all there is. That's what makes us a man. That's what makes us a woman. Is loving God with all of our heart. And when you love God with all your heart, then you want to do what he asks you to do. Because when we do what he asks us to do, then we become like he is. And that's all there is to being a man or a woman. It's knowing God and loving him and submitting to him. Once you understand that, then everything falls into place. You know what he's saying? You, you can't run your business and make a success of it without God. Oh, you can make lots of money. And you could gain a great deal of prominence, but you won't enjoy it. You can't have a family and manage your kids without God. You can't even enjoy a good book without God. You can't even enjoy a good meal. You can't enjoy a run down the slopes. You can't enjoy a kill shot. You can't enjoy anything without God. Not really. That's what he's saying. But once that, that falls into place, then everything else has meaning. Now, you have to understand that he's not talking about any old God. He's talking about the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God who has revealed himself in his word, the God who became flesh and dwelt among us, the God whose glory and whose beauty we beheld, our Lord Jesus. And when you know him, Everything else falls into place. He doesn't promise success. He doesn't promise prominence. 
He just promises that you'll understand yourself and you'll understand life and what it's for. Cole is kind of a funny church in many ways. It's supposed to be, but it is. And we have a lot of people from different backgrounds here. We There are certain things we believe very strongly, certain things that are clearly taught in the Scripture, and these are the things that we try to, uh, to uh, emphasize. But we don't emphasize other things about which Christians are uncertain and unsure. And consequently, we have people who come from all over. We have Catholics that come, Pentecostals, uh, unbelievers, a number of people here who don't know God yet, who are just looking in. It's one of the best ways, I think, to find God is to watch God's people at work and at play. We're not perfect. We do a lot of things wrong. But I hope you've come to see that there's real love among us and, and there's a desire to grow and to be what, what God wants us to be. So there are a lot of you just looking in. And perhaps you're like the teacher. You're on the inside of a closed system waiting for some word from the outside that will tell you what life is all about. Well, here it is. This is it. It's right here. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He, he wants to impart meaning to your life. He wants to give some purpose and make some sense out of a life that's, that's unraveled and has come apart at, at the seams. Now, you've got two options. You can, uh, you can try everything that Solomon tried and spend an awful lot of time doing it and spend an awful lot of money trying to find some answers and, and in the end look back and discover that you've lost it all or you can take his word for it. See, that's why Solomon wrote the book. He said, I tried it. I tried it. I tried everything. And here's a man who had the resources to do it. And I came to God by the process of elimination. Nothing else worked. And that's what he says to you today and to me. There really is nothing meaningful out there apart from God. But you can know him. He, he became flesh. He dwelt among us. He gave up his life for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised for our justification. That is the declaration of righteousness that God makes. When he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the fact that Jesus paid for that sin and we are forgiven once and, and for always. So all you have to do to know him is simply to open your heart to him. As Dee saying, he, he is standing outside the door knocking. He's not trying to tear the door off its hinges. He will not invade the privacy of your soul. But he knocks gently, persistently. I want you to let him in. You can do that this morning. Our Lord said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. You may have a very checkered past. You may think that you've already discredited yourself and that God really could not love you, but he does. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Let's pray. Lord, what a relief to know that there is a way out of the messes that we've made for ourselves. We're grateful for a man like Solomon who went through all the hurt and the pain 
in the struggle to find some meaning and significance in life and learn these hard lessons for us so that we don't have to learn them again. Thank you for coming to us, Lord. Thank you for condescending to our, uh, to our condition and going through all that we've gone through in order to show us of your love and then dying for us is the great manifestation of, of your power and your love for us. Our hearts yearn for that salvation, Lord. We know that there's something in life that we've missed somewhere along the way. And we thank you for offering it to us again and again and again so that we cannot miss it in the end. And so we want to yield up our hearts to you this morning. If there's anyone here in this group that that has not yet opened his or her, her heart up to the Lord Jesus, you can do that this morning just by praying this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Come into my life now, as you've promised. Thank you for coming into my life. Lord, we thank you for your unremitting, relentless love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you're dismissed this morning, but uh, if you made that decision to invite Christ into your life, would you please talk to someone? Talk to one of the ushers or one of the elders or come up here to the front and talk to some of us that are standing here, a friend who is nearby, and tell them what you've done. Paul said, if you confess with your heart the Lord Jesus and make proclamation with your mouth that you've been saved, then that's one indication that, that the transaction is, is the real thing. You need to tell someone what you've done so they can, it'll confirm it in your own heart and so they can help you along the way.